It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to... Meander Mile Part 7. Wow! It's the part you've all been waiting for. I can hear a round of applause. I can hear people passing out. I can hear people hyperventilating. I can hear people going, wow, this is the greatest moment in the history of anything that's ever existed. Yes, it's Meander Mile Part 7. Um, anyone who's new to Murder Mile, this is uh, not, a, not an official episode. This is kind of an extra episode that I throw out when throw out it makes it sound like I've just cobbled it together I haven't it's hard hard research but what this is is it's a nice little walk through Soho I take uh, I take a street and I deliberately pick sorry it's really noisy now because there's a cement mixer just to the side of me normally this would get edited out of an episode but not today friends not today um, so on this episode what I'm gonna do is take you on a guided walk down Frith Street in Soho it's a street that starts uh, on the uh, southwest corner of Soho Square that we visited many times before, uh, and it takes us to Shaftesbury Avenue. What I'm going to do on this walk, um, I'm going to show you all the kind of places associated with murder and crime that we'll walk past. Not all of them, um, obviously just a handful that we can fit into an hour-long episode. If you want to, uh, you can go to my blog. There's loads of pictures on there. You can follow it using the pictures on the blog. There's also a Google street map, uh, so you can follow it on the street map, or you can just enjoy listening to my rather annoying voice. Oh yes, ladies and gentlemen. Right, so this is the third of three. Um, what I'm gonna mention is uh, Frith Street. It's not very long. You can kind of traverse it in uh, maybe two minutes from top to bottom. Um, I can actually see the end from here. It's a, a kind of a, quite a thin one-way street uh, going from Soho Square down to Shaftesbury Avenue. Uh, it's a Thursday evening, it's relatively busy, but what I'm going to do is make sure that I don't get beaten up and mugged. But uh, I will guide you along some interesting places. So if you're ready, let's begin. Uh, in my hand I actually have a nice coffee as well, so you'll hear a slurp every so often. Um, just behind us is uh, Soho Square. Soho Square, it's a large public square, thank God. Uh, it used to be a uh, kind of a private square, but it got opened up to the public years ago. It's one of those nice rare places where you can sit and kind of relax. Um, underneath it though is an air raid shelter. If you go through Murder Mile, you will hear uh, Soho Square mentioned a couple of times. Um, in a not too distant episode called The Sad-Faced Killer, uh, there was a young gen gentleman called Donald Westgarth, 
If you go into that episode, this is where he met his cousin. This is where the start of his day uh, started. He came to London. He was looking for some fun. They went to they went and watched some movies. They uh, had a couple of meals. Uh, and then that night, for the first time in his life, and for no particular reason, he brutally murdered a sex worker called uh, Agnes Mary Walsh. Why? We don't know. But this is where his fun weekend started. Um, as also mentioned in the... Uh, in the... Uh, uh, Dean Street episode just across the corner is actually the the local church uh, in the corner of there was where the watchman would be as mentioned in that episode as well there's quite a few kind of uh, medical practices uh, uh, medical theatres you know um, sorry medical schools especially in the uh, late 1700s early 1800s uh, that's where the London Burkers who were the London version of Birkenhead that's where they would go uh, to deliver uh, fresh corpses that they had murdered. But prior to that, the reason why there was a watchman over at the churchyard over there is because there was a lot of grave robbing going on. Dead bodies were big business, especially in the medical world. You could go in there, you could hand over a dead body, no questions asked, you get eight guineas for it. But a lot of the doctors were like, these bodies are rotten, they're old, we don't want them. Hence, murders started happening. Anyway, that's just a little bit of an in intro to Soho Square. There's a relatively little known murder and quite a horrific one that happened in Soho Square back in 1977. Now I've never covered this case on Murder Mile before. It's the case of a little known uh, spree killer or serial killer, depending on what way you look at it, called Kieran Kelly. He was an Irishman, uh, he was homeless. Uh, he's, his murder spree happened late 1970s, early 1980s. So oddly, in the same era and the same places, as British serial killer Dennis Nielsen. Uh, whether they met is unlikely, but uh, they were murdering in and around the same time. Kieran Kelly, what his MO was, it's still hard to determine how many people he murdered. It is meant to be somewhere between nine and 15, although um, a lot of them were kind of cases that he had um, he'd confessed to, but there was no real evidence for it. What he would do, he was known as the tube pusher. What he would do was go to tube stations, push people in front of tube trains, and then afterwards, when the police turned up, he'd go, oh, I saw the whole thing. But he would deny that he did any of it. Um, many people believe that he was the tube pusher. Um, but here's a murder that ha he, he uh, committed in Soho Square. So 2nd of June, 1977, 68-year-old uh, Morris Whaley was found dead in Soho Square. His face and his genitals had been horrifically mutilated and the neck of a broken bottle had been thrust up his rectum. Lovely. Uh, obviously he was a homeless man. One of his friends was a homeless man as well. Um, when Kieran Kelly was arrested, it was actually his companion. When he was charged with murder, it was his companion who turned around to the police and described in detail exactly what had happened. But six months later, when it went to trial, uh, Kieran Kelly was actually acquitted of this murder because A, the defense said that he was blind drunk. Uh, ergo diminished responsibility and they couldn't rely on him as a witness uh, this is actually something that will crop up in a later episode of Murder Mile uh, actually it's an episode I'll mention when we get to the end of this street for various reasons um, also uh, his friend the other witness disappeared so it it never went to it went to trial but of lack of effort, evidence it collapsed uh, that was in 1983 so uh, that is the murder of Mor Morris Whaley unfortunately there's not much more information I can tell you about that. 
but you'd be delighted to know that I'm moving down Frith Street now. I've actually started moving away from the cement mixer, which is very noisy. Um, on our left-hand side, uh, you will see the Soho uh, Clinic for Health and Care. It's kind of a, a Soho drop-in center. I've only been there once, uh, once before. And I'll tell you a little story. It's not murder related, but I think it's interesting. Uh, I went there once, I'd exerted myself. Let me just say I was, I was trying to impress some ladies and like a complete idiot, I'd overexerted myself, I'd injured my leg and I'd sprained it. And my leg had swollen up like a, an elephant's leg. It was huge. So because that was my, because I worked on Frith Street, it was my local clinic. I wasn't registered there, but I walked in and I said, can I see the nurse? And I went, yeah. Took me to see the nurse and I said, oh, I've injured my leg. And she was like, yeah, yeah, it's just a sprain. Yeah, it's fine. You don't need to worry, it's not cancer or anything. And I thought, that's a really weird thing to say. Why would you say it's not cancer or anything? Uh, so she, she was like, yeah, I'll just, uh, I'll just you know, uh, put some special cream on it and give you some antibiotics. I can't remember what she did. And then second time around, she said, you really don't need to worry, it's not cancer. And I thought, why is she saying it's not cancer? She said it twice. And then just before I left, she said again, you don't need to come back here again. Don't worry, it's not cancer. And I was, by the time I left this clinic, I was absolutely paranoid, as you would be with someone telling you it's not cancer. You don't need to worry, it's not cancer. Uh, that was 20 years ago. Whether she still works there, I can't remember her name, so it makes no difference. Um, moving on, ladies and gentlemen, immediately opposite the Soho uh, uh, clinic that I was just talking about, uh, at 66 Frith Street. On the right-hand side, it's a uh, five-story building. Uh, it's actually 65 and 66 Frith Street. It's got a black frontage outside, and it's the uh, location of Gravity Media. Now, we've come across this in Murder Mile before. Um, as you remember, around the corner on 3 Carlisle Street was uh, the Maltese Club, where Amabal Rika and the Faruja brothers had a bit of a set too. Amabal Rika was shot dead there. Um, when you go into that story, it's a little bit weird. There's a detail that kind of stumped me. I looked at it and went, wow, I didn't expect that to happen. Because top floor of 66 Frith Street uh, was actually a flat uh, which uh, the, the main tenant there was Francis Ferruja, who was one of the brothers who killed uh, Amabal Rika. It was actually in Soho Square where they dumped the gun as well. Um, but Francis Ferruja shared a flat with Amabal Rika. He was absolutely terrified of him. This is what makes it fascinating. He was terrified of him. Apparently Amabal needed a place to stay in Soho so he could get drunk, so he could bring back his fancy women. Francis was terrified of him, so he basically let him live there for free. I know, absolutely, absolutely bizarre. Um, but if we move on a little bit further, you will see uh, 65 Frith Street, um, and it's a, a lovely little restaurant. I, uh, it's called The Sussex. A uh, lovely little restaurant. It's doing oysters at the moment, and because of COVID, obviously everyone's sitting outside, breathing in fumes, uh, but everyone's having a nice glass of wine. It looks lovely. That is 65 Frith Street. It's a four-story townhouse. Very nice, it's got green awnings on the outside. Um, this is a little story that I I've stumbled across. I've, I found a couple of small articles about it, therefore it's a bit vague, but bear with me. Uh, so this goes back to the winter of 1932. As mentioned in the earlier episodes, sometimes cases crop up where all I can find are these small pieces of information and there's very little else, so it's gonna be quite vague. Um, 
so uh, this was the winter of 1932. Uh, there was a gentleman called James G, with a G, whatever that stand stood for, or Jimmy G, G-E-E, -E, we're not too sure. It, 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 his name seems to change a lot in different articles. Apparently he'd been missing for a couple of months. He'd vanished without a trace. Uh, we know that he was a gambler. We know that he had money problems. Uh, this was a lodging house. Uh, he was living in the top floor, of which someone is living there right now and seems to be having a lovely time. Um, he left all of his stuff behind. Uh, you know, his money, his clothes. It looked like he'd just left for no particular reason. Um, he'd been missing for six months, as mentioned. Uh, the residents in the flat started complaining that there was bad water in the flat. That's the, the exact words they use. The pipes were there. The pipes were pretty bad. Uh, they were getting a bit of a blockage all over the place. Um, and even though there was, as in those, as today, there was a resident, uh, a restaurant on the ground floor, they believed that it was actually the, uh, the restaurant that was actually blocking up the waste pipe and, you know, uh, they inspected it and they were, they were like, oh, it just, it looks like old meat and what, what people now call a fatberg, which is a collection of fat. But when they started looking into it, they realized it wasn't chicken, it wasn't pork, um, it wasn't beef. It's, this is what it's described as un a meat of indeterminate origin. Exactly. Uh, so no one really knows what it was. Um, obviously, uh, Jimmy G, if that was his real name, he was never found. And it is unknown where the meat came from or if indeed they were his body parts. So there you go. That's that little restaurant. If you're in there enjoying oysters, maybe it's Jimmy G. I don't know. Um, oh, actually, uh, it's not Sussex. It's the one just before that. Sorry, they had a sign outside the door that said, Sussex. Uh, this is actually, it's actually called, ugh, it's actually called Noily Pratt. Yes, Noily Pratt. Mm, good name. Anyway, moving on, moving on forwards uh, to number six Frith Street. Um, as, as I should have mentioned at the start, the numbers go, there's clearly some noisy pricks having a couple of wines who haven't had a wine in a while, and hence they're very loud. That's why I'm moving away. Um, the numbers on the street start one and then go down on the left-hand side and then they come back up the other way. So you'll have low numbers on the left, high numbers on the right. Hence, Christ, I am almost 200 meters away and I can still hear that guy. He's loud. He needs attention, doesn't he? Uh, anyway, we're outside number six, Frith Street. And uh, if you look at it, it's a nice five-story townhouse. Uh, uh, brown brick and cream on the outside. It says Hazlitt, built in 1718. This isn't really a murder story, but it's kind of a, an opportunist story, if, if you will. Uh, so William Hazlitt was an essayist and literary critic of the late 1700s and early 1800s. Uh, by the 18th of September 1830, he was kind of at the end of his life. He'd moved into Hazlitt's, at, uh, he'd moved into, it wasn't called Hazlitt's then, it was just a lodging house at 6 Frith Street. Um, it was very cheap. He was surviving by writing articles for the Atlas, the, the London Weekly Review. Um, he, by that point, he was dying of stomach cancer, so there was no real cure for him. Basically, he was taking a lot of opium for the pain. Uh, so. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, 18th of September, God, you can still hear him. He is so annoying. Yeah, and, and he's high-fiving all of his friends. I feel sorry for everyone around him who are looking at him going, uh, check, please. 
Uh, 18th of September, 1830, uh, he died. Apparently his final words were, well, I've had a happy life. And he was buried in St. Anne's Churchyard in Soho, which is at the end of the street. He was very poor by that period in time. His wife and children lived elsewhere. Uh, so, um, he died on the 18th, but they, uh, the, land, the landlady who ran this lodging house, obviously you can appreciate, people are pay being paid, uh, people are paying for this lodging either by the day or also by the week. Um, he's dead, he's behind with his rent, he's not gonna be able to pay any more money. She's already thinking, oh my God, I've gotta wait another day for this uh, the, the family to turn up to get rid of his body. Uh, so what's she gonna do? She did, <laughs> as maybe what everyone would do, um, he was dead in the bed. She got his body, she moved it underneath the bed, and then she started showing tenants around, around the flat. So people were going around going, yeah, it's a nice little flat, I might move in. Not realizing the body of William Hazlitt was underneath the bed. That is why it's called Hazlitt's Hotel. Uh, it's a very nice hotel, boutique. Uh, you can move in and I believe you can even stay in William Hazlitt's room if you want to. Personally, I wouldn't. I'm moving away from the noisy man. The noisy, desperate for attention man. My God, he's standing up now. I think we all know people like that, don't we? We've all got a uh, inverted commas friend who was like that. Um, oh, so the, if we move down a little bit more on the right hand side, you've got the Dog and Duck pub, which uh, as mentioned last time is where I uh, did a little bit of work with my, my good friend, Ray Winston. Did I mention that last time? Yes, I did. My good friend, Ray Winston, there we go. Uh, just, just call me friend of the stars. One day I, I shall entertain you with my stories about my good friend, Michael Caine. Yes, I've worked with Michael Caine. He was a lovely man, really lovely. Anyway, okay, we're just moving along the street. Ladies and gentlemen, we are in front of 10 Frith Street. Uh, as you can see on the left-hand side, it's, it's now actually a Nando's, but back in the late 1800s, uh, this was actually a lodging house. Um, uh, now, this is one of those stories where I don't have a huge amount of information about it. Sometimes things just aren't well reported in the press. Uh, as we've seen many times before, if a, if a big story usurps something, the press just don't report it or, you know, it gets filed away. This is one of those stories, so it won't be coming uh, to Murder Mile as a full case. It's perfect for Meander Mile. So, 10 Frith Street on the left-hand side, four-story uh, uh, corner building at the moment, used to be a lodging house. Apparently in there in 1872 was a lady either called Mary Choate, Mary Coat with an E, or Mary Cotter, although Mary is quite a common name uh, back in that era, so her first name could literally be anything, as we've seen, same with Eliza. Everyone seems to be called Eliza in the late 1800s. Uh, this was a lodging house. She was uh, between 53 and 57 years old. Obviously, this is an era before most people had birth certificates that they carried around, so getting pe people's exact ages is very difficult. Uh, she'd been arrested. When they went back to her flat, uh, there was, um, obviously it was quite a derelict building. It wasn't in good shape. In one of the wall spaces, they found the mummified remains of two babies. Now, as you can appreciate, uh, mummified, that means that the babies had been there for some time, maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years, maybe 30 years. Um, in another lodging that it appears that she also lived in as well, they also found a mummified baby as well, which kind of led the police to kind of thinking, it's her, she's the one. Um, the babies obviously had, been, had, been, had died a long time ago, but when they did a small autopsy round at the workhouse on the babies, um, 
there was no sign of um, obviously there's no sign of assault on the babies and no sign of strangulation uh, it was quite clear that the babies had been born they were all very undersized um, and as we've seen in many episodes of Murder Mile before if you're an unmarried woman if you're trying to hold down multiple jobs if you get pregnant outside wedlock it's seen as seen as incredibly shameful um, early 1800s as we've seen in the other area episodes I think the, the Marie Poulton episode uh, there was a risk that she was going to be executed for concealing her own baby concealing her pregnancy and you know she did strangle her baby but um, unlike this lady it appears that the, you know the babies um, the babies just didn't make it as as everyone seems to know in that era you know that's why people had lots of uh, large families because babies had a tendency to die early um, so unfortunately what it looks like is that she was a single woman um, she had several children unfortunately these ones didn't survive she obviously couldn't report it to people that she was pregnant so she hid them she did the best she could bit of a sad story I would love to know more about that unfortunately there, there was uh, it didn't go to a court case uh, there was a small inquest in one of the local pubs because that's when they did it um, but unfortunately that's all we know so oh um, just moving out of the way of the street because there's a, a big uh, refuse truck that's making a shit ton of noise and that's going to probably harass us for the rest of the rest of this recording um, as mentioned the dog and duck immediately opposite on the right hand side a really good pub that I used to go to when I worked here oh 20 years ago when I was a very poorly paid um, runner I haven't seen him in years but there used to be a homeless man who would come uh, there when we were drinking really nice guy long ginger hair long ginger beard ginger dog with three legs that's why I always remember him and you know some people get annoyed with homeless people uh, begging for change but this guy I really liked because you turn up he would turn up and go sorry to uh, bother you folks um, I'm saving up for a boo job and we go oh well done mate well done like every single time we saw him he would come up with a new story you know uh, one day he was training to be an astronaut and another day he was he was, he was planning to hire a hitman it was like he never actually said one day he never actually said I'm, I'm planning to buy an extra leg for my dog I think let's be honest he was such a lovely guy I'm sure he would have spent all of his money on uh, treats for his doggy as we all would um, so we're on the corner of Bateman Street at the moment uh, Frith Street and Bateman Street uh, um, now um, this is uh, as you'll probably remember in oh they see, they seem to have laid some fake grass in the middle of the road for no particular reason and there's a lampshade that's on I am very confused but this is Soho if you go back to the Dean Street episode on the corner of St Anne's Court you will remember that I did uh, I told you a little short story about some fingers of a right hand that were found and they weren't too sure whether this was kind of a gangland killing or whether you know uh, these were kind of found in an autopsy and someone had kind of dropped them on the road whether it was kind of an honest mistake or whether it was actually a, you know a, a bit of a killing there was another one on the corner of Frith Street and Bateman Street and again the details for this are very sparse so 1941 in apparently in the street parts of a face were found no bones just the skin uh, the victim was unidentified um, 
uh, some people, a, a lot of locals have told, told me about this. Uh, apparently, it, some people said it was a gangland killing, as mentioned. Uh, others believe it could have been uh, parts of the body parts that were found uh, in the Blitz bombing. As mentioned, there was a horrific amount of bombing that went across here. Um, 1940-1941 we had like 155 days of bombing across London uh, um, and I mentioned this in the Reg Christie episodes what would happen is you know finding body parts was kind of a, a daily event you know, buildings would get bombed out people would loot it um, they would go and steal the things obviously it's wartime people would steal things but you'd find body parts so people would you know finding an arm and egg would be kind of a normal thing uh, the mortuaries were filled with body parts, unidentified body parts. Uh, so, we're not too sure whether this part of face that was found, whether it was a gangland killing, whether it was a murder, or whether it was a body part that someone, you know, having looted a bombed out building, found it, dumped it in the street. Maybe someone did it as a bit of a laugh. But apparently, apparently there was a, uh, the locals at the time said, these, this, this was the quote, the cut looked clean. Uh, it wasn't jagged, it wasn't torn, it didn't appear to be burnt. Some people say it looked as if it had been sliced with a knife. Obviously this is a kind of apocryphal, you know, this is years later, so we really don't know uh, whether this is true, uh, who the person was, what happened to the face, whether it was even real, but this is an unsolved case. Uh, oh, now, Bateman Street, if you look to the right, um, um, it's, it's a bit of a dull area. Actually, it goes up to the Crown and Two Chairman, which is there, and uh, just ahead, I think, is Royalty House, which we dealt with in uh, the Dean Street episode. That's where the London Burkers, uh, as mentioned at the top, that's where they went in and they tried to uh, sell off a body part of a young boy who they'd just murdered. Um, but this is also the street where in episode 58, Jacqueline Beery, the hooker of the hooker, and the, the hooker, the poker, and the stranger, um, if you remember the, that's, sorry, that's my, my key word, isn't it? If you remember, of course you remember. Uh, David Emery had been to visit uh, what he thought was his favorite prostitute. She wasn't in there. It was a, a, a French lady called Jacqueline Beery who looked, uh, she looked really beautiful. She really did. He didn't like her for some reason. Uh, he hit her over the head multiple times with a poker. And when he ran, apparently he ran down Peter Street onto Wardour Street and his exact quote, Realizing I still had the poker in my inside pocket of my overcoat, as I turned onto the next road, I threw the poker into what I think was a doorway. Um, that is believed, well, he said it was uh, Bateman Street, which is just to our right. Um, police searched it. The murder weapon, the, po the poker, was never found. Um, so that could mean that someone probably found it, thought, oh, poker, I could do with that. So uh, for years, they've probably been using it in their fire. Or who knows? Maybe a local has it as kind of a hand-me-down and is still using it today. I have a, a poker that my sister made at school. Um, I won't say how many years ago, that'll tell you how old she is. She's over 50. Uh, <laughs> she won't listen to this anyway. Um, but we, we still use that today and uh, so who knows. If you look on the uh, left-hand side of uh, Bateman Street, uh, on the right-hand side of the left-hand side, uh, you will see a building called, it used to be called the Carlisle Arms, it's now called Simmons. It's a uh, three-storey building, uh, black on the bottom, white on the top, with a big red S on the outside, because it's called Simmons, it's a, it's a bar. Um, apparently the Carlisle Arms closed 2015, uh, but originally it had been there for more than 100 years. 
I'm just gonna have a swig of coffee. Oh, that was nice, it's gone a bit cold. This isn't a murder case, but I just thought it was one of these fascinating stories that won't come to Murder Mile, but I just like it, so here goes. Um, this was 1893, a gentleman called Walter Cowell, he was an envelope cutter. I'm not too sure what that actually was. He was drinking in the Carlisle Arms Tavern, as it was called back then, with some friends. Apparently he was a very boastful man, he liked to gamble, he liked party tricks. He had a habit for getting very, very drunk. We've all done that. Um, he was in the pub with his mates and he decided that he was going to um, ask the, the barman for a billiard ball, which the barman did, and he said, right, I'm gonna hold it in my mouth. Barman was like, don't do that, that's really stupid. And he was like, don't worry about it, mate. It's just a, it's just a sleight of hand. It wasn't a sleight of hand, he was drunk and he decided to do it. So he put the whole billiard ball into his mouth. Uh, if you've never played billiards, it's kind of roughly the same size as a pool ball or a snooker ball. Um, put it into his mouth, clamped his teeth around it and all of his mates were cheering and going, oh, well done, we'll buy you a drink for that. And because they were gonna buy him a drink for that, he decided to go one better and he attempted to swallow it. Mmm. Unfortunately, um, he choked on the ball. His, his friends tried to get it out of his throat. Unfortunately, it was too big. His throat was uh, closed over and he died inside that pub. Warning to us all, don't be a burk when you're drinking. Um, I was at my dad's last weekend uh, and I almost choked to get death on a, on a piece of cheese the size of a fingernail. I know, I literally I, I, I'd had a Scooby snack, as I like to call it, two Frikadellen burgers in between like a doorstep of bread with uh, cheese and pickles. And I was walking into the other room to, to absolutely munch the hell out of it. Put a little piece of cheese in my mouth, breathed at the wrong moment. It went into my throat. My throat, literally, I couldn't breathe. A, a, I literally went, ah, 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 ah. couldn't breathe in, couldn't breathe out, was struggling. My dad, because he's a little bit deaf, didn't hear a thing. Uh, my stepmom, who's an ex-nurse, heard it, recognised the sound, came in. Luckily, by that point, I'd managed to, um, I'd managed to get out of my throat. But I tell you what, I was bloody terrified. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Um... Just gonna throw this one in there. This has just cropped into my head. So, uh, as you see Simmons there, if you look at the building next to it on the left-hand side, it's a little tiny doorway that leads to the buildings above. This has actually been shut down now, but back in the early 2000s, when I used to work as a runner on Frith Street, obviously I used to go to the Dog and Duck, have a couple of bevies. Um, but that little building down there next to Simmons uh, was a brothel. You could tell that because it has the signs outside saying model and an arrow pointing upstairs. And what used to fascinate me was just watching all the men, like it would be lunchtime and you'd see men in suits going down there uh, to make use of prostitutes during lunchtime. Absolutely baffling. It's one of those things that I've never really understood. I know that they say one in 10 men has visited a sex worker. I, I think I've only met two who have. Maybe there's a lot of liars out there, I don't know. Personally, I haven't. Uh, I, I, I mean, Eva uses me as a sex worker, really. I'm just her sex toy. We all know that. I'm, I'm fine with that. So, moving on. Uh, we're moving on down Frith Street at the moment. And uh, on the left-hand side, you will see a tiny little building. It's weird. There's four and five-story buildings dotted around. And then, for no particular reason, at... Oh, where are you? Uh, 14 Frith Street uh, is Garlic and Shots. Lovely little pub, a lovely little bar. It's kind of a bit of a rocker's bar. Um, I'll tell you a, a crime story in a second, but that, uh, I went in there years ago. This is um, a, a colleague at work, Ollie. Really lovely guy, it was his leaving do. And unfortunately I'd been out the night before and I was mullered. I'd, I got one of the worst hangovers I had ever had in my life. My life at the BBC was basically get drunk, come into work, and hopefully my hangover would disappear by three o'clock. By five, I was still feeling rough. Anyway, Ollie had invited me out to his leaving do, and I was like, oh mate, I don't know if I can. He was like, oh, oh there's, there's only gonna be me, you, and one other person coming so far. And I felt really bad, so I was like, oh, okay, Ollie, I'll, I'll come along. And I thought, I'll just stay for one. You know that old phrase, I'll just stay for one. Went in there, garlic and shots, really, I, I, great place. And I walked to the barman and I said, I've got a mountain hangover, what can you do? And he was like, I'll give you a Tex-Mex mix, which is like a, a, a Mexican Bloody Mary. Holy shit. I did one at the bar, a little shot of, of kind of tomato juice, chili, vodka, all that. Did one, I was like, ooh, that was good, that did the trick. Did another, thinking I'm gonna go home soon because I kind of don't need to keep drinking. I did another one, I was back on track. I think I got home at about 3 a.m. I continued boozing. That's, that's how great life is. But here's the story about uh, 14 Frith Street. Slurp of coffee. Um, now you can see that this is kind of a one-story building, but it used to be a five or six-story building. Uh, it's kind of derelict above. Um, for at least 20, 25 years, they've never built above that. You can see the kind of uh, the, the structural work in between of where a building, uh, which is holding the buildings apart, but there isn't a building there anymore. Anyway, it did used to be a five to six-story building. 
This is one of those apocryphal stories that I've heard dotted around, I've heard rumours, I've heard myths, and this is kind of a combination of it, but again, it will never make it to Murder Mile because there's just not the concrete evidence. As, as if you go into uh, the episode we did for Chinatown, there's a lot of cases that definitely happened that people have seen that have been flagged up, but people don't go to the police, therefore information just isn't stored. Um, so apparently this was late 1940s. Uh, there was a gangster who would uh, later be known as Limpy Roberts, apparently. Uh, although it was believed he was Maltese, so it's highly likely that his surname was not Roberts. Uh, this was around the era of the Vassallo gang and the Messina brothers, uh, two rival uh, Maltese pimp families um, who were implicated in the murder of Ginger Ray from episodes eight and nine. Also quite a few other Soho prostitute murders in and around the area, uh, which hopefully we're going to get to at some point in Murder Mile. Um, Limpy was a part-time pimp. Uh, he had several inverted commas girls on his list who he would make money from. Uh, uh, apparently, uh, the uh, whether it was the Fasalo gang or whether it was the Messina brothers, we don't know, or whether it was another rival group we don't know but apparently he was refusing to give up his girls inverted commas there was a bit of a meeting on the second floor locals said uh limpy who <laughs> okay this is their words uh he had small man syndrome uh so he, he was a small man but he liked to act like he was a big man he refused to back down um apparently during the meeting he was hung outside the window so they didn't hang him with a rope they literally got him by his throat hung him out the win window and was like you hand over your girls or we're going to drop you he, obviously little man syndrome he refused to give up they dropped him uh, if you look at the windows now there's railings on the outside apparently there wasn't railings back then but he was dropped into the street it was high enough that he, uh, it, it wasn't high enough that he would uh, die he didn't break his back or anything like that um, but what did happen was he broke his right leg uh, he apparently had some damage to his left ankle as well but his right leg was absolutely split to pieces it was repaired uh, and apparently that's where his nickname comes from that's why he is known as limpy um, apparently people like the Vassallo gang and the Messina brothers or other pimps would do that it's kind of a good warning to people it's kind of you do as we tell you to do or this is what happens to you it's it's free advertising isn't it if you're um if you're a gangster and you see someone limping and walking around you go oh god you know these rival gangsters did that i'm not going to mess with them so uh yeah that was that story um if you look at the building just uh, next to it uh, that's 15 frith street there is now uh my eyesight's not particularly good it says a uh, rasasa yayang I think it's a Thai food restaurant. That's 15 Frith Street. It's got a red awning on the outside and it's cream colored uh, for the three stories above. Weirdly, um, when I was a runner back in Soho years ago, th that's where I worked out of. Uh, that used to be Scala Films. who did films like The Crying Game, Mona Lisa, stuff like that. Um, uh, and Last Orders, which is where I worked with my good friend, Michael Kane. Lovely man. Uh, I used to work there uh, on 30 pounds a week. Yes, and then two years later when I was hiring runners on £250 a week, they were complaining that they weren't earning enough money. And I was like, guys, you have no idea. Um, anyway, 15 Frith Street. Uh, going back to episode 10, uh, Alfredo Zomparelli and the Golden Goose. 
Now, remember I mentioned in that episode that Alfredo Zamparelli had murdered uh, David Knight, the brother of Ronnie Knight, the gangster. He'd gone to prison for three or four years. He should have fled after that because everyone said, you're going to be hit, you're going to be whacked out. And he was like, nah, I'm the Billy Big Bollocks here. I'm not going to run away. So he set up a travel agent. Apparently, this is it. I did a little bit more digging. There's nothing written anywhere. Uh, there's nothing obviously written down because I think it was an illegal travel agent, i.e. it was used as a bit of a front. But apparently in the rooms above where I used to work was Alfredo Zomparelli's, um, uh, his travel agents. Um, I'm still looking into that, whether that's exactly where it was because I've kind of heard about this uh, from uh, locals. So it may be true, it may not be true, which is not to say people are lying. It's just to say, sometimes people's recollections aren't that good right uh let me scroll ahead oh just so you know um obviously if you go back to uh, uh the other side of 10 Rillington place uh my my, uh, my multi-part series about Reg Christie I've been doing a lot of research over the over the last couple of years to find out who else Reg Christie may have murdered this is what a lot of people say is that Reg it's almost certain that Reg killed other people. Um, it's, as you can, uh, there's that phrase again, as you can appreciate, I know you can appreciate it. Um, <laughs> um, with sex workers, nothing's written down. There's, obviously there's no booking system, names aren't taken, photos aren't taken, it's all clandestine. So it's hard to really pin down uh, where someone was, what they did, who with and at one time. And don't forget, everything is kind of paid in cash. So this is hard to pin down. Um, we do know that Reg visited many sex workers across his, uh, his time. We know that he visited Soho. We know that he visited um, uh, Frith Street. Because obviously there was a lot of brothels in and around this area. Um, now, did Reg Christie kill anyone in and around uh, these buildings? Um, we know going through those uh, episodes that he visited some sex workers in Little Marleybone Lane. Uh, I think it was Little Marleybone Lane, uh, just off uh, Paddington. Uh, going back to that episode, it was, um, I think the lady, it was a photographic studio and apparently he was taking pictures of ladies in, in various disgusting positions. Um, that's what Wedge did. We know he visited some sex workers. Did he murder them in their houses? Uh, I think it's unlikely. If we look at Reg's history of, of those who we did murder, he liked privacy, he liked to take his time. Um, so I think it's more likely that uh, he did murder, he murdered the ladies who were found in his house and his garden, but I think it's unlikely that he murdered any others because uh, the risk of being discovered, but you never know. Um, just, hang on. Um, just going to tell you about a story. If we move on from Rasasa Yayang, don't know how to pronounce that. Um, if we go one, two, two doors down on the left-hand side, we've got to 17 Frith Street. Now, um, if you are using Google Maps, uh, it'll probably say to you that it's a tattoo parlor. Uh, it isn't a tattoo parlor. Uh, it's a uh, it's a little lovely little kind of uh, a bar called Ceviche, uh, which I've been to. Uh, I think I went to uh, ages ago when it wasn't that bar, but it was a, a different bar. Very nice. Oh, I'm just getting out of the way because service is being set up in the street. Um, this is one of those random stories. Eleventh uh, of October, 1965. I'm amazed that we even know the date for this, but luckily we do. Um, uh, a man had been admitted to Lewisham Hospital with severe gunshot wounds to his right leg. The man, who was 35, told the police that he was shot between 8am and 9am in Frith Street 
outside number 17, so literally where we are now. Um, apparently he'd been bundled into a car, driven around for some time, those are his words, and then dumped outside of Lewisham Hospital, which is in South London. Um, the man was found by the gatekeeper uh, of the hospital at about midday, uh, and he had an emergency operation. He survived with gunshot wounds to his leg, uh, probably ended up like Limpy, Limpy Roberts. Um, but unfortunately, because he refused to give a statement, which is his prerogative, um, no one was arrested for the shooting. So we don't know who committed it. We don't know what happened. Uh, basically, the police had no case to go with. So, so unfortunately, that was that. Right, moving on a little bit further, uh, we've got uh, 47 Frith Street, which is where Ronnie Scott's is on the right hand side. Uh, Ronnie Scott's, the famous jazz club. If you go back to uh, the uh, Chinatown episode, uh, you'll hear me mention Ronnie Scott's on Gerard Street. That was the original location. I think it was 16 Gerard Street. Um, but obviously around the 1960s, I believe that they moved here. Anyway, we've been here before. Do you remember? Mm. Uh, it was on the first floor of here that uh, the Blackout Ripper, he turned up there. It, um, just after he had murdered Evelyn Oatley, his second, his, well, supposedly his second victim on Wardour Street. He was covered in blood, he was drunk, it was about 2 a.m. He met a lady called Laura Denmark. She was 22 years, years old, pretty, pretty petite and blonde. Um, he picked her up over at Piccadilly Circus, went back to her flat on the first floor of 47 Frith Street right here. Ronnie Scotts wasn't there at the time. Um, but instead of having sex with her, he, he had a bit of a problem. Uh, as seemed to be the problem quite a lot, he couldn't seem to uh, uh, get an erection or maintain an erection. Um, now, I think this is an interesting thing. It gives you an insight into who the Blackout Ripper was, because some women, like Evelyn Oakley, uh, apparently she was quite immature, and if, if a man could not perform, uh, she would find it funny. Um, whereas, Laura Denmark, clearly experienced, she was like, look mate, not a problem at all, let's have a cup of tea. And they sat there together on the edge, edge of the bed, had a cup of tea. He talked to her about his wife who was pregnant. Uh, he talked to her about his job, he told her his name. Um, they were sitting there having a chat. Uh, then he said, do you mind if I stroke your hair? It's something that he liked. She stroked, uh, she let him stroke his hair. Um, and then he finished himself off. Um, if I can use a kind of indirect uh, euphemism there. I think we all know what I mean when I say finished himself off. He was content, he was happy with that, he thanked her, he gave her the money as promised and he gave her extra um, and then because it was dark out, it's the blackout, uh, he walked her back to Piccadilly Circus. He said goodnight to her, he gave her a peck on the cheek and she said he was an absolute gentleman. Fascinating. I think that gives you um, uh, an amazing insight into who the Blackout Ripper was, what he was about. Um, weirdly, a lot of people who met him uh, did seem to say that he seemed to be a really nice guy. He seemed to be very, uh, not genuine, but he was kind of, um, um, he could be quite sweet. And I think that's the thing with serial killers and spree killers, is that, you know, if they make the decision to be a sweetie, as with Dennis Nielsen, as we've seen, you know, he could lure people in because Oh man, someone just sneezed near me. Didn't put their hand to their mouth at all. That was, even though I'm outside, that was pretty disgusting. Um, as we've seen with serial killers, they, they can be uh, really nice when they want to be. Um, I am currently crossing uh, Old Compton Street at the moment. 
Um, it's really busy at the moment because everyone is outside, everyone's having drinkies, the COVID marshals are out. It's busy and God knows how they're going to keep control of this place. Um, just so you know, if you're an avid uh, reader, um, Soho has actually inspired quite a few books, uh, two of which. Um, so one was uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. And the other was The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. Um, obviously, both of them uh, kind of knew the area quite well, lived in the area at times. Um, both of them were actually kind of a little bit enthralled and disgusted by the kind of debauchery of Soho. So if you read those books, that's really what those books are about. It's about two-facedness. It's about kind of the, the horror of it. So, uh, yeah, fascinating place. Um, in front of us, you will see, uh, I, I think this is 24 Frith Street. It's a, a little news agency called Dodo. We covered this in the old Compton Street episode. Next to that is Bar Soho, where the uh, where Savas Dimitriadis uh, um, murdered his good friend Christos uh, Dimitrio, who we mentioned in an earlier episode. Also on this corner, uh, I've been going through a lot of Old Bailey cases, um, and what I seemed to be stumbling across was uh, the word omnibus quite a lot. And I was like, oh, what is going on? And what I realised is, uh, we've heard about omnibuses uh, a couple of times before. Um, what they were is, uh, in, in the days before kind of uh, public transport, well, it was public transport, basically it's a horse-drawn carriage, but it can hold up to 20, 30 people and it's got two, two sets of floors on it. So, you know, ground floor and a first floor. Um, they used to be across the city, obviously before the, the kind of main tube network was in. Um, and they would shuttle people across the city, which I never knew about. You rarely get any stories about omnibuses. But when I went through the Old Bailey archives, I kept seeing the word omnibus crop up. And it's weird, it's, it's, there was a, it was in an era where there, obviously cars weren't on the roads, there was no real kind of um, uh, regulation for kind of uh, omnibuses and things like that, in the same way that we have with e-scooters at the moment. You know, people seem to be able to kind of uh, e-scooter wherever they want and in those days no one really knew how to react around uh, omnibuses apparently there was an omnibus coming along Old Compton, uh, Compton Street where we are past Frith Street and on this corner it was pulling in to uh, drop some people off people want someone wandered into the road um, the omnibus steered out the way uh, unfortunately three people ended up dead crushed underneath the bus because um, it was late at night because uh, a lot of the street was empty. Uh, there were a few police around at the time. Um, there's a lot of cases in the uh, Old Bailey where a lot of drivers were kind of found guilty of, of uh, manslaughter because of, you know, bad driving. In this case, the driver disappeared. So although there was a little bit of an inquest at the Golden Lion pub around the corner, that was where they, they did a lot of inquests was in pub. There was no trial for that. So um, uh, apparently that was the summer of 1864. Uh, that's all I know at the moment, but if I hear any more, I will let you know. Um, just moving down the street now, just past Dodo, uh, this is a kind of a little street between Old Compton Street and uh, Romilly Street, who we visited many times before. Here's a little story that I thought was quite sad, but I'll tell you it. Relatively recent, September 2011. <clears throat> a street beggar uh, stabbed a thug to get to death and wept, in court, uh, and wept in court as he walked free from an Old Bailey courtroom uh, after the jury accepted that he had acted in self-defence. Uh, 
Uh, Paul Edgerton, 24, from Chester, was cleared of the murder and manslaughter of Frederick Stobart, 30. Uh, the court was told that Mr Stobart terrorised homeless people in the West End of London. He called himself a taxer. If he saw, apparently, if he saw a homeless person, he would dislike them, he would go up, he would rob them, he would beat them up. Seems like a really nasty piece of shit, let's be honest about that. Uh, Mr Edgerton was begging on Frith Street, literally where we are right now, uh, when Mr Stobart demanded his money and his sleeping bag. I'm sorry, what a piece of shit. A homeless man, you, beg, you, you demand it, you're robbing him of his money and his sleeping bag. What a piece of shit. Um, uh, Paul Edgerton refused to hand over anything, quite rightly. Mr Stobart threatened to kill him and made a move which Mr Edgerton thought was an attempt to pull a knife. As you can appreciate, he's a homeless man, he's living on the street, he's kind of living on his wits. Many do actually carry knives because, you know, the risk of a homeless person being beaten up is unfortunately quite a lot. Um, but when he went to court, he, he stabbed Mr Edgerton. Uh, Mr Edgerton stabbed uh, Mr Stobart in the stomach uh, and he died. Uh, but when he went to court, he went to the Old Bailey uh, they said he was acting lawfully in defending himself while in fear for his life. So he actually walked free. It's interesting that kind of, you know, case that's in there and actually, you know, quite often you hear stories about someone defending themselves and, you know, uh, the courts go, oh, no, no, guilty, guilty. But actually, especially given the fact that he was homeless as well, normally you'd hear a story where they just try and pin it on them and normally the rich walk free and the, free and the poor don't. But in this case... Um, he seemed to, uh, he seemed to have um, been found uh, not guilty, which is good. I don't know much more about the case, but uh, yeah, I, I, I did more digging, but there's just not enough for an episode. Uh, let's go to the final story here. There is one that I'm going to do. This was originally on my original version of this. Um, if you look, uh, I'm just, I'm just crossing Romilly Street at the moment, which. Uh, so if you look uh, down the left-hand side, you will see the Coach and Horses pub, which uh, is a wonderful pub that I visit a lot. Very traditional. If you hear any kind of um, knees up mother brown, kind of cockney um, uh, piano music uh, in any Murder Mile episodes, that's where it comes from, because I kind of meet up there with some chums. And in the good old days before COVID, um, uh, we used to go in there and have a good old sing-along. Unfortunately, I, I don't know whether that happens now. Um, there's a murder right outside there that happened about two years ago. I would tell you about it on here, um, but it's now going to become a full episode of Murder Mile. Originally, I think uh, I mentioned it a couple of times before. I said probably not coming to Murder Mile because I thought to myself, it's just junkies, isn't it? Junkies having fights. But the more I looked into the story, and as mentioned right at the start, it's a, it turned out to be a story about diminished responsibility, about what I found fascinating with the case was uh, it was about two, uh, two drug addicts. Uh, one stabbed the other one brutally to death. But because the one of them had been out on a 36, 35, 36 hour binge of you know, cocaine and uh, heroin and spice, uh, when it went to court, they were able to say, you know, this isn't murder, this is manslaughter based on diminished responsibility because he was high on drugs. And that got me thinking, what's the difference between taking drugs and or, or taking drugs and being drugged do you know wh where does your responsibility lie where does it end uh, where does where where do you have responsibility and where is it diminished i find that fascinating so that's going to be an episode coming soon but i'm not going to tell you about it now ah which brings you to our final final uh oh, final little story here now um 
as we've seen many times before, um, quite a few streets have been demolished over the years, renamed, renumbered, things like that. This place is no exception. So unfortunately, this is um, left-hand side of Romilly Street going down towards Cambridge Circus. Uh, there was a road there originally called King Street that got demolished a long time ago. But here's a little murder story that I've read about. Unfortunately, there's not much I can tell you about it except what I'm gonna tell you now, which is basically taken from one article, uh, hence, that the description is a little bit weird, but here we go. Uh, so this is on New Year's Eve, 1853. Uh, on Saturday night in the neighborhood of King Street, Soho, with uh, King Street, Soho was thrown into a state of excitement that a report of a man living at 15 had attempted to murder his wife and he had then committed suicide. Uh, from the inquiries we have made, uh, apparently the man was called Heiss. This is what makes the uh, um, research for this episode really difficult because all we know is his surname is called Heiss and apparently there's seven different spellings of it, so I, that's all I know. Don't know his wife's name. Uh, it didn't go to the Old Bailey either, so this makes it really difficult. Uh, apparently he was a German tin plate worker, lived with his wife and two children in the attic of a house at the uh, above-mentioned address, which I just mentioned. Um, it appears that his circumstances were good, they say, which means he was, he was working, everything was going nicely. Um, this is the Saturday, uh, four days before on the Wednesday, his wife had just given birth. Uh, unfortunately, there was a, um, a lot of problems between him and his wife. He was jealous that this actually wasn't his child. Um, uh, let's just die on. Uh, he frequently ta taunted her with his suspicions, uh, but she had no reason to suspect that uh, mediated any violence towards her. On Saturday night, however, as she lay in bed with her infant at her breast, so therefore she's uh, breastfeeding her four-day-old baby at that point, he suddenly rushed into their attic room. It was a one, kind of a one-roomed little lodging that they had. Suddenly rushed into the room with a dagger slash knife, and he stabbed her in several places on the left-hand side and her arm. Don't forget, she's got the baby in her arm as well. Luckily, the baby wasn't hurt but she was absolutely drenched in blood. Uh, she immediately jumped out of the bed and rushed uh, from the room, loudly calling out, murder, murder. This seems to be a, uh, an 18th century thing that anytime something happens, people go, murder, murder. I've never heard of anyone in, in uh, recent cases making that sound. Uh, apparently she dropped down on the stairs. She was uh, from loss of blood. Um, uh, the neighbours removed her to the, the room below. Apparently there was a couple of doctors nearby, so they came into the house. Uh, Mr. Martin and Mr. Clark came in. They were on Frith Street, same street. They tended to her wounds. Um, when they came in afterwards, they went looking for her husband, Heiss, uh, to find out where he was. The, the, the infant was all, all right, although it was covered in blood as well. Um, but when they went into their room, they found that the man was, in their words, quite dead. Uh, on entering, this is a direct quote, on entering the room, a frightful scene presented itself. The floor was a pool of blood and Heiss lay partially upon his bed. Um, his throat was cut from ear to ear. He'd done it himself. He had literally severed his head from his body uh, with the exception of the vertebrae. According to them, both the carotid arteries, the windpipe and all of the soft parts of his throat had been cut through. Uh, that, I mean, that t tells a lot about him, really, doesn't it? That he could literally, you know, you've heard about people kind of slitting their own throats, but normally it's a quick slit and they're done. But here, he seems to have um, 
either had a really super sharp knife that just went straight through a man's gonna get run over by a taxi or or he seemed to have a good old go at his throat to try and kill himself I think it tells you a lot about the state of his mind at that moment uh, sadly that case is not going to be coming to murder mile I would love it to but unfortunately there's not enough information there's barely enough to be an end piece for meander mile how was that folks did you enjoy it that's amazing that's coming at just under one hour well actually it'll be one hour by the time i've finished waffling um anyway that was meander mile uh, part seven for fifth street as mentioned next week we're going to go back to regular episodes of murder mile the first episode we will come across is a uh, a four-part series really interesting case i hope you enjoy it anyway that was meander mile uh have yourself a good week stay safe be good lots of love bye bye hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.